Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So what is the worst thing you have ever done? We got a microphone up here. Anybody want to come up and share it? And let the, yeah, I don't want to share it either. Some things are just private. Some things we don't want to talk about. Some things we just don't need to tell other people or at least want to tell anyone. So then imagine God inspiring somebody else to write down for the world to see your greatest sin, your greatest downfall, and then commanding others to actually read it, right? To read about it, to learn from it. That's the situation we find ourselves in this morning in the life of David. Regardless of what you've done, chances are it doesn't come close to what David did. Because so far we've learned amazing things about him. We've seen he's almost perfect, right? He's the guy who chases after God. He's the guy who stands up to fight the giants for the nation. He becomes the national hero. He's the guy who patiently waits on God to move and doesn't take um, action into his own hand. He doesn't seek revenge when revenge is so justifiable. When he becomes king, he unites the country. He brings and and puts together a new capital. I mean, the reason why Jerusalem is Jerusalem is because of David. He brings the ark back and all the blessings that come along from it. And so far, David's record seems impeccable. It's unattainable. It's almost like he's this superhuman who can't do anything wrong. But while David is able and capable of doing amazing things for the Lord, and he did, the other side of that is, which means he can do incredible evil as well. And so it is with anybody who holds power. And so here's how the story starts. We're going to look at today, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It says, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab, the Israelite army, to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbath. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So here's what's going on. This other, these other people group picked a fight with David. Egos got the best of the new leader. And uh, this new leader decided he wanted to embarrass David and his, the nation of Israel. Well, turns out it didn't work out so well for him. So David sent his men to to finish this fight that this other group picked. But what did David do when everybody's off to war? What's it say he did? Nope, go back. Verse one. He stayed behind. When kings normally go off to war, David stayed home. Rather than being the military leader and taking all that energy that God gave him to be this warrior, and rather than using all that energy for godly things, he stays at home. And for some of you men, that's your problem. Let's just talk about it. You're not using that energy God gave you for godly things. You're using it for ungodly things, aren't you? 
You're taking all that pent-up energy, all that things, and you're using it in the wrong places. As it's been said, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Look at verse 2. It says, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, how many of y'all get to take a nap in the middle of the day? King does. Army's all fighting. People are dying. He's taking a nap. David got out of his bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And so notice, because of where the palace would have been located, David is on top. He's strolling around in the middle of the afternoon. Remember, he's the one elevated, not the other people. He's the one on top. He's walking around almost looking for trouble. And notice, David is on the roof, not the woman. Right? There's nothing in the text that suggests that she has positioned herself to be seen. It is David prowling around on the rooftop looking into the affairs of other people. Verse 3, he notices this woman and he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. The Hittite. Now, the translators here in, in this version don't translate it the way it should be. Uh, the NASB captures the response much better. So let's look at it. Verse 3. It says, And David sent a servant to inquire about the woman. And someone said, Is this not? Is this not? According to scholars in Hebrew, this is clearly a rhetorical question. Meaning, they're not telling him who she is. David knew who she was. Saying, is this not? And we know this is true because in, in chapter 23, we find out Uriah, this, this woman's husband, was one of David's 37 greatest warriors. And her father was also one of David's 37 mighty warriors. And her father's father, which is her grandfather, was one of David's wisest counselors. So David clearly knew this family. These were his top warrior's family. This was his advisor's granddaughter. This tells us that there would have been so many things David would have had to work through to justify his next actions. I mean, he self-justifies everything we're about to read. He knew who this woman was. He knew she was married. He knew the family, but they're off at war. Can't leave this pretty girl by herself, can he? Look at verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She just had completed the purification rites, having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. And I know some of you are thinking, boy, that is a lot of detail there, isn't it? <laughs> That's just a lot of detail. There's a reason for it. We'll get to it in a minute. Some of you know where the story's going. But just for clarity, this is absolutely an abuse of power. The king summons this woman, and what is she supposed to do in light of the king calling her into his home and into his bedroom? Abuse of power isn't a new thing in the world. It's been going on for thousands of thousands of years since there's been human beings. One Arnold states, a commentary Arnold states, he says, the irony, of course, is that David stays home. And rather than defend his subjects, he abuses them. The author is telling us that she is not. She's completed her purification rites because clearly she's not pregnant. Because the next verse fills us in on what happens. Verse 5. 
It says later when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant and the baby is his. This story goes then from bad to worse. David devises a plan to cover up his sin. He sends a message back because Uriah, her husband, off at war. So he sends a message to his top commander to send Uriah back home. So Uriah comes, comes to the palace. David says, hey, so how's the war going? And remember, he's one of the top 37 of the nation. Like he is the elite guy. So, okay, he brings back this elite guy to fill him in on what happens. And so after that, David figures, well, he's come back home. He's, of course, going to go home. He ain't seen his wife in a while. All right, he's come back from war. You guys get that, right? So he comes back from war. He's like, he's going to go home and see his wife. Turns out, he finds out the next day, Uriah never goes home. David inquires, saying, well, you gave me the report. You told me how the war was going. Of course you didn't see your wife. Why didn't you see your wife? What's, why didn't you go home last night? Uriah replied. The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab, my master's men, are campaigning in open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. He's saying everybody's at battle. Everybody's at war. How can I go home and be with my wife when everybody else is, is, is sleeping in tents? What a man of honor and integrity, which we know would have pierced David's heart. But David said, well, why don't you stay one more day? Why don't you stay one more day? And instead, this was David's grand plan. He said, why don't you come to the palace? Let's eat. And David got him drunk. Like, this is a real story. I'm not making this up. It's in your Bible, okay? David got him drunk. David wanted him to get drunk. He said, because surely this man ain't been home in a while. If I have his belly full and I get him drunk, surely he's going to go home then. Right? What's David trying to come up? You guys get this. She's pregnant, trying to get him to go. So it's not his baby, right? You get the point. Turns out it didn't work. Uriah didn't go home. He went and slept by the, um, the palace guards once again. So David's plan fails. He won't go home and be with his wife. She's pregnant, and he can't let this be. So David, of course, comes out and just repents, right? Nope. David sends the commander. David sends back Uriah with a letter to the commander to send Uriah to the front lines and then pull out. Send Uriah to his death. Uriah was returning to the commander with a letter, a literal death sentence for him. And the commander did exactly what he was told. Verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but here's the kicker, folks, but, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. So not only does David abuse his power, commit adultery, entices Bathsheba to commit adultery, and kills a man, he then uses the entire scenario to look like a hero, Look at me caring for one of my great warriors died in battle. I'm going to care for his wife. Aren't I amazing and awesome? 
I'm going to take care of her. And the public eye, David is so humble. He's so kind. But the Lord was displeased. See, folks, you can fool everybody else, but you can't fool him. You can have everybody else. Everybody else thinks you have it together, but you can't fool him. So then in chapter 12, Nathan, the prophet, comes and tells David a story of how a rich man who had everything had some dinner guests over. And rather than taking from his abundance to feed the guests, he takes the only sheep of a poor man, slaughters it, and feeds it to his guest. David, of course, hearing this from the prophet, was outraged and said, that man deserves to die. Who would do something like that? Well, Nathan fills him in on who this man was. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you of king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives in the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much more. Verse nine. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. Verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes. Folks, that happens. You should read your Bible. A lot of crazy stuff goes on. And he goes to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Verse 13. Then David confesses to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replies, yes, but the, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. And we get quiet. And the child does die. And David's entire family was tore up from here. You can read all about it the rest of 2 Samuel. But as far as his personal life goes, as, long as, his fam- as far as his family goes, they were never the same. His sin brought devastating consequences into his life and the life of others. Because, folks, here's what we know about sin. We can't control it. There's no rationale for trying to understand it. It's dark. It's evil. It's disgusting. Our hearts are dark, but it's utterly impossible to imply logic when it comes to sin. And we can't understand the full cause and effect of sin. We can never guess how deep the hurt's going to go for other people and who else is going to be affected by this sin. And you say, well, this just isn't fair, which of course is why God says what? Don't do it. Stay away from it. The effects are going to be far greater than you can imagine, so just don't do it. And for the rest of his life, folks, the rest of his life, this is young David, the rest of his life, he's trying to put the pieces back together. But the truth is, once something like this happens, it can never go back to how things 
were. Because things are different now. Everything's changed. So there's a couple of things I want us to look at from this story and think through. Again, take the time, read on your own, and you can see how all of those events that the Lord says is going to happen actually happens. It's pretty horrible. But look at what we learn. First up, you are only one decision away from destroying your life. Do you believe that? And do you know you're capable of it? This is where we're going to try to work on your pride a little bit this morning. Listen, folks, sin is real and it's devastating. Andy Stanley says, for every sin, there's a pleasure in payment. And as far as I can tell, he's right. And what I've learned by personal experience, many of you have too, the pleasure that accompanies sin is never greater than the payment that comes due afterwards. A short-term sexual encounter with this woman quite literally destroyed his family. That sexual sin was then multiplied in his kids to an extreme, folks, that he was not expecting. Sin is nothing to play with. We can't control it. Paul tells us this, 1 Corinthians 10. He says, these things happen. This is the Old Testament, what's written down. says, these things happen to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. We can learn from the life of David. We can learn from these stories that sin is not worth it. Not only is the sin not worth it, the cover-up that comes, the deceit that comes afterwards isn't worth it. Because quite often after we sin, do we want to just come out and tell everybody about it? Nope. We cover it up, don't we? And then it's deplorable act just gets compounded and it's work and it's worse and it's worse. That's why Paul says, verse 12, he says, if, if you think you were standing strong, like if you think you have it all together, if you think, look, I got this, no big deal, it's under control, he said, be careful not to fall. If you think you're above this, he's saying you're not. You're not above it. Nobody's above it. He says the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Listen, sin has devastating consequences. But when you mix pride in with sin, that's when things get out of control very quickly. You see, pride tells us that we're dealing with temptations that nobody before in the history of man have ever experienced. Like we are the greatest victim and the only one, like nobody else has ever had to deal with something like this. And it's because it's so great is the reason why we keep falling. Because nobody else can handle this. Nobody has. Our pride tells us we're the greatest sufferers, which Paul says, no, No, the temptations you're facing are no different from what others experience. Like you're experiencing the same things other people experience. You don't have to fall. You don't have to give in. You don't have to do that sin. You see, we have written for us the experience of others and the deceit on how it all worked out. So we know it's not true, but pride also tells us that it's not going to happen to us. That we'll never fall. We'll never make that mistake, that we can handle it. We can control it. Our pride tells us we're greater than sin. In fact, our pride tells us that God doesn't know what he's talking about. 
and that it's really not sin because in, my, in, in this life and in my life, it's okay. It's not the big of a deal. We got it under control. But folks, do you know that's what makes Satan Satan? That I'm greater than, I'm better than, I know more than. Folks, it's pride. Saying we got it all figured out. And there's a simple antidote for this. It's transparency. It's admitting your weaknesses and failures. It's finding somebody and confide in. It's being quick to repent, not covering it up, not pretending it, you have it all together. And folks, if you didn't know, do you know that I know and everybody else knows that you don't have it all together? You thought those nice clothes fooled us? It didn't. It's okay. You're messed up. We're messed up. Like we're a bunch of messed up people. We know that. So you don't have to pretend. You have to find somebody to talk with. David should have had somebody saying, look, look, I'm about to, here's what I'm about to do. You need to tell me no. And someone should have been able to speak in his life like, David, that's a horrible idea. You've seen her grow up. What are you doing? Like, you can't do that, David. We learn that we are just, you and me, we are one decision away from ruining our lives. And you are not above this. You are not greater than this. Accept it as truth and be on guard. You see, the only reason I suspect we get off guard is because we think we have it figured out. But folks, we don't. So you were one decision away from ruining your life. Next, I want us to think about this. This is a hard one, especially in light of today's world. We have to remember that David and Bathsheba does not cancel David and Goliath. This is the hard one, especially in light of our cancel culture. One bad decision does not wipe away from past success. While David, what David did put a blemish on his record forever. I mean, it's horrible. He, what he did was just horrible, but it did not erase his past victories. You have to remember, for those of you who've fallen and you've fallen hard, remember sin does not define you. Sin does not define David. When we talk about David, when we generally think about him, we think about David and Goliath, don't we? We think about the young boy who rose up to the challenges, but this was a part of his story, Bathsheba. And just because the one happened didn't mean all the rest was, wasn't true. Even though David fell, fell hard, Jerusalem was still the holy city. He put that together. Jesus rides in there as the rightful king. He's still considered the greatest king in the nation of Israel outside of Jesus, of course. What David did did not erase his past success. More importantly, more importantly, it shows us that just because David fell, it didn't mean what happened before was fake or false. When a leader falls, we can feel duped and tricked into thinking that everything that we learned or every place that we grew or everything that happened was wrong, that it was fake. They must have been deceiving us the whole time. Are y'all following me? We could think that, oh, wow, they made this mistake. So that means everything was just bad. Folks, we know from the scriptures that isn't true. I can't speak to everyone, but we can at least speak for David because we are told at the very beginning of his life, David was a man after God's own heart. 
And everything David did was for the Lord and the Lord blessed it. Like we have insight into that. So just because somebody falls, just because they do horrible, disgusting things, just because they're capable of that, which we all are, just because they fell, did not erase everything else they did. They just fell. They sinned. What David did was sin, but it didn't erase what he did. He is not defined by the scriptures by his sin, but rather by his heart. He is still known as a man after God's own heart. So you are one decision away from ruining your life. And you were also one repentance away from turning your life around. See, what I imagine catches us all off guard is how quickly he was forgiven. He simply confesses, and it seems so small. I mean, it's after he got caught. He said, I've sinned against the Lord, and Nathan told him, and you are forgiven. But what we learn is that just because he was forgiven didn't mean he escaped the consequences for his sin. He had to live with those. Forgiveness means our relationship with God has been restored. It's like, with, excuse me, our relationship with our Heavenly Father has been restored, but like any father knows that once that's happened, there's still consequences. When your kids mess up and they ask for forgiveness, there's still consequences for their actions, isn't there? But in that moment of repentance, David stopped trying to hide. David stopped walking down that path of deceit. He stopped doing all that and started walking with the Lord. So the Lord was with him. Now he's walking with him. And the crazy thing about this is the Lord's going to walk with him through this next stage of messiness. But because he's forgiven, the Lord is right there with him. We forget that about people who sin, don't we? We forget that they're forgiven. We forget that the Lord is then with them, walking with them, guiding them. And you can do the same. No matter what you've done, no matter what sins you're in, you can repent. You can turn from. You can start walking with the Lord. You see, the thing is, David was still king and was still able to be king. And God used him in that way, even after this. I imagine he's still getting together all the stuff that is for the temple that's going to be built. Wait, um, war still happens, battles still face. He's still the leader. In fact, what just blows my mind, perhaps yours too, is Solomon, the next king, the wisest man to ever live outside of Jesus, the one who built the temple for the Lord, is the son of David and Bathsheba. Even more importantly, when they trace the line of Jesus through Mary, his biological mother, we know Joseph wasn't, but through his mother, his birth mother, when we trace the line, when Matthew records this in the gospel, through the line, how we get to Jesus through David, here's what he tells us, not one of those other sons. We're told Jesse was the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon. And look at this, it's like an asterisk, just in case you weren't paying attention, just in case you didn't know the backstory. Matthew's like, yeah, whose mother was Bathsheba, the wood of Uriah. You're like, Jesus comes from this line, from this stuff. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. So that God still uses this. David's sin was horrible, but it didn't erase, and this blows our mind, right? It didn't erase what God did through him, and it's not going to erase what God's going to do through him. God still works in spite of sin. 
He's still, the Messiah is still going to come through this way. Folks, here's what's important to see. God didn't cancel him. God redeemed him and continued to use him. But we have to repent. That's what David did. And bring that stuff into light and deal with it. And what we're reminded about through the story of David is simply David needed a savior just like the rest of us. David needed a savior just like the rest of us. And we're not going to excuse his sin and we're not going to excuse the sin of other people. But the truth is David needed a savior just like everybody else does. And recently in our world, and depends on what you follow, but I think it's just like a common thing now, we've been bombarded with the sin of leaders and the sins of spiritual leaders, and they've fallen, and they've fallen hard. And I know it's hard to work through all that, but never forget, folks, people aren't perfect. Be careful of putting anyone on a pedestal, especially me. I'm real messed up. If you didn't know that, just letting you know, I am. Like, don't put people on a pedestal. Because when they fall and when they mess up, they're going to fall and they're going to fall. Depending on how tall that pedestal is, you put them on. It's how far they're going to fall. But folks, stop putting people on a pedestal. You were designed and created to worship whom? People? Pastors? Politicians? Goodness, I hope not. Right. We, we, that's on us, folks. When we raise these normal human beings up to be something great, that's on us. Like they're just people who need a savior. Like the gospel is still true. No one is righteous, not even one. But God chooses to work through those broken vessels. And if you're a leader, I just want to give you a little bit of advice. Don't believe your own hype and press. You aren't that awesome. Right? You're not designed to receive glory. You're designed to give glory. Ensure that when people praise you and give you glory and tell you you're doing a great job, ensure you po- point that right back to the place it deserves. Because you can't contain it. You can't hold on to it. It's going to ruin you. But the truth is, folks, David needed a Savior just like you need a Savior. We all need Jesus Christ. And that doesn't make sin okay. It's not okay. But it does remind us that there was only one perfect one. Just Jesus and only him. Every single person needs him. And so some of you, just if I can speak directly, some of you have done horrible things. Yep. And it's time to move past that and get on with your life. Repent from your sins and ask for forgiveness. John 1, 8 through 9 says, and you say, well, I know this. Well, good, believe it then. He says, if we claim we have no sin and we are only fooling ourselves, we have not lived the truth. Basically, you're all messed up. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us. Your relationship's restored. Forgive us from our sin and cleanse us from all, all wickedness. Folks, we got to believe that truth and move on. Go to the people you need to go to, confess, repent, reconcile, work through your stuff. But your failure, folks, your failure does not define you. Your Savior does. And no matter what sin you have done, you are not greater than Him. Let's deal with your pride for a minute. 
You have to deal with your pride and your ego, thinking what you did was somehow greater than who he is. It's impossible. It's not true. He is faithful to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Your ego needs to be crushed next. Jesus is greater than. So it's time to live into your new reality. Because your mission is still the same. Your purpose is still the same. You are here to glorify God and make him mature disciples. That is your mission. That is your purpose. And God will remove you from this earth when that is no longer the case. He will take care of that for you. So it's time to get on with it. And you say, well, Brian, you don't understand what I've done. You're right. Maybe I don't. But what I see from the life of David is he's not done with you. From what I see from the life of Paul, he can use all sorts of messed up people for his glory. And it seems, listen, it seems like he likes using messed up people. Because we're all messed up, folks. Because when he uses a messed up person like me, guess who gets the glory? It ain't my family. It ain't my IQ. It's him. Right? He uses the, the weak to shame the wise. I'm pretty sure there's a Bible verse in there about that. There is. It's in 1 Corinthians. I know my Bible, folks. I'm just throwing that out there, okay? It is. It's really there. But listen, you may say, well, Brian, you don't understand. You're right, but God does. You're going to have to live with the consequences of your sin. It's just a fact. It's not fun. I don't like it as much as you do. But David did, and so did Paul. In fact, look at what Paul tells Ananias Excuse me, look what God tells Ananias about Paul. Look at what Paul understood his life was going to be. After persecuting the church, after dragging people off, after affirming and holding the coat so people could kill a deacon. Like one of the first deacons, Paul was there. Paul watched it. He saw it. He approved of it. He wanted it to happen. Like he was okay with murdering people who were Christians. Look at his new reality. God said, said, but the Lord said, go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel. Listen, here's what Paul had to deal with for the rest of his life. And I will show him how much he must what? Yep. That's why Paul suffered. God told him up front, you're gonna suffer for my namesake. So folks, don't expect to escape the consequences of your sin. Grow up, deal with it. But thankfully, through Jesus Christ, he doesn't unleash his full wrath on us. And you and me and we can live the rest of our life for his glory. So live in light of his mercy and grace. Humble yourself and get on with it. We got things to do. People need to be saved. Others need to learn from your mistakes. So it's time to get going. And some of you, You've had horrible things done to you or to the people you love. And I'm sorry. I know how horrible it is to live with the consequences of that and to work through that for the rest of your life. I work through it all the time and it stinks. I wish I didn't have to, but it's just true. But being hurt because of what another person has done is horrible. But you will gain strength that you've never thought possible. And Jesus can put those pieces back together. You just have to accept you have a new reality to live into. And I'm not minimizing what they've done by any means, but there's only one way to move forward. And Jesus tells us what that is. It's called what? 
forgiveness. There's no way you can forget what happened. I'm not pretending that's a thing. I'm saying we can stop them from hurting us by forgiving them. Forgiveness is the way you stop them from hurting you. While you may have not done things as terrible as other people have done, the truth is because you're not perfect, you've also hurt people. You're not sinless. You're not blameless for the things that you've caused in your life. You're like, Brian, I've never done anything. You have kids, ask them. They'll tell you all the things you've done wrong. They're probably in therapy now getting help with it. It's just what happens, right? None of us are blameless and everyone has to deal with, because we're all sinners and all sin hurts other people, by very definition, every single one of us have to live with the fact we have hurt other people. All of us, none of us are off the hook. There are different levels. Oh, I agree. But all of us have hurt others. And we got to live with that. And we got to work through that. This is where forgiveness comes in. And remember, folks, forgiveness by its very definition is not fair. The whole point of forgiveness is it's not fair. And this is what we have a problem with. We want to be quick to be forgiven. And we want others to experience justice and wrath, don't we? But the mercy and grace of God, what he does, and how he is so quick to forgive is so hard for us to fathom. But that is the point, that the greatest of all sins can be forgiven. And I know that someone has done something horrible or has hurt you. And I know it doesn't feel like they should ever be forgiven. But that's simply pride. Because Jesus Christ is greater than them. Jesus is greater than your sin. And if Jesus, God himself, has come down to this earth, wrapped in human flesh, was beaten and hung on a cross and bled. Folks, never forget someone has paid for that sin. They're not getting off. Jesus paid for it and was beaten for it and died for it. There's no sin greater than Jesus. That's the point. The reason why these sins can be forgiven is because the greatness of the one who paid for them. The majesty and the greatness and the glory of God is far greater than the travesty of your sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe the glory of God is greater than the glory of that person who hurt you? Oh, it's so much greater. Forgiveness is not fair, but it's releasing people from what they owe you. And forgiving is, this is the key to living a life for Christ. And folks, all of us are going to have to figure this one out. It's not easy, but it's our calling. Because all of us have been hurt. All of us have hurt others. And all of us have to live with the consequences of other people's sin. Our journey in life is a journey of forgiveness. And some of you need to just start forgiving. Start working through that. We all have that journey to make. And see, the truth is, and perhaps no one's told you, after sin and after those devastating things that happen, there's just a new normal, folks. Forgiveness doesn't mean you go back to how things were. You can't. You have to figure out your new reality and trust God for the strength to live into it. And then lastly, before we close, some of you, some of you are on the verge of making a complete and utter mistake. 
you're indulging with, you're playing with sin, and you think you got it, and you think you have it figured out, and you think it's not going to affect you, I'm just here to tell you you're wrong. You're going to hurt far more people than you can imagine. Those other people are going to have to live with it for the rest of their life because you chose to continue moving forward. You chose to talk her into it. You chose to go to that thing. You chose to watch that play. I mean, come on, it's endless. You get it. But the point is, you can choose not to. You can choose today. You can repent. You can turn. You say, I'm not, I'm not going down that path. Like, I don't want my story to be David's story. I don't want my kids to have to deal with what my father did. I don't, I don't want my wife. I don't want my next person. I don't want to have all this baggage that I'm going to bring in the next relationship. You do know that, especially if you're single, right? All that stuff you're doing is coming with you into that next relationship. Ask anybody who's married. But some of you are on the verge and it's, you think it's not that big of a deal, but I'm just telling you it is. Just stop, repent, turn. You say, well, Brian, I'm not going to kill anybody. Perhaps. But you may kill your marriage. You may kill your reputation or your business or that trust or whatever else it is because sin, folks, sin brings death. That's what accompanies it. It's not joy, it's not happiness, it's not satisfaction. All that stuff that you're trying to gain from sin, it is not there. Which is why your relationships keep failing. It's not there. Sin brings death and destruction and decay. That's what the scriptures teach us anyways. And you don't want that thing to be a part of your story. So turn. Today is the day you can do that. Will you pray with me?